Hello to all. The day is finally here. My name is Ryan Railsback, and this is the first full episode of the Ryan Railsback podcast. This one is just going to be a solo episode, uh, no conversation with anybody, and I kind of just wanted to kick things off by giving an idea around my path that has led me here today, um, around my identity and overall my narrative and my story. I am a very big believer in stories. Uh, I think that everything is a story. The world is a story. The universe is a story. Our identity is a story. Everything that goes on in our life is a story. Even the smallest little thoughts and feelings and meanings around feelings is a story. So I just wanted to start the vibe off right by giving a little bit more insight into my story and some of the things that I've gone through. I'm going to be straight up. I recorded this episode like four times already, but I sounded like a robot. (laughs) So I'm giving it another go and being a little bit more loosey with it. Um, So yeah, I hope you enjoy. I am very grateful if you are listening to this, and I'm very grateful if you are not listening to this. Um, I'm excited that our paths have crossed, though, and I hope that they continue to cross. I'm going to start this episode out with a poem that I wrote. Uh, It's one of the first poems that I wrote, and I, I started writing poetry recently, within the last year or so. Um, I found it to be a very healing process. Uh, It really allows me to put just emotions and thoughts on paper in an artistic and creative way. And when I'm able to remove my expectations around it, they actually turn out really awesome, in my opinion. And I love my poems. Um, And so, yeah, this first one that I'm going to share doesn't have a particular name. It's just titled Story Poem in my documents. Um, But it's about the most complex story that I know and that I've, I've come across. And so without further ado, here we go. The most complex story known to me consists of only three words. And this tale came to be from the songs of two singing birds. If it weren't for the wind, this story might have never been heard. But now this fable has a chance to evolve through the word. Perception is the lesson. Perspective is the teacher. Storms of lightning and thunder spark wonder towards this mysterious creature. A narrative about faith and hope and belief. But sometimes this story has chattering teeth. It waits for an answer and a guiding director, but all that it finds is an anxious projector. Despite the confusion and moments of despair, this story always knows that love is in the air. If fear drives it forward and death causes lies, then the meaning of this life might just be to feel alive. Fate brought me here, and destiny will see that the purpose of my soul is to fight and be free. A castle made of sand and a dream filled with glee, I Am Ryan is the most complex story known to me.
The thing that sparked the seed for that story was really just thinking about the concept of identity and this identity that we're given from birth. And then our, our perception is kind of morphed and conditioned and programmed to fit this identity of who we think we are. And it's a very tricky thing. And one of my favorite stories ever is Alice in Wonderland. And I've come to realize that the concept of falling down the rabbit hole is very much a play on identity. And it's a play on waking up and questioning who we truly are. And that's why it's a rabbit hole, because the concept of identity is almost infinite and multidimensional, and there are so many different aspects to it when we peel back the layer of just the material identity, the physical self. And so many things make up our identity, and, and it really becomes this, this trail into the past, from the past, going into the future, of this identity when we are trying to figure out who we are we're strapping all of these different things onto our identity and kind of wondering is that who i am is does this make me who i am or is it just this or is it this or is it the combination of both of these and it might be all of it um it's so multi-dimensional and it's so complex that we can't really ever figure it out until we dig very deep inside and we uncover the many different layers that makes up who we are, who we are as a collective and who we are as an individual. And I think that's what this spiritual path is about. And that's what healing trauma and, and all of this stuff is about is really, really understanding at least for me, it's been understanding who I am and what makes me who I am and choosing what to make a part of my identity. And so what I'm about to talk about is really just a, kind of a brief overview of my narrative so far. Um, and it will go through different chunks of, of my life and different periods and just touch on the kind of the different events and experiences that I feel kind of woke me up to wanting to go down a path of spirituality and, and healing and really what is the the main aspects of of my narrative so far. I think a lot about when I was younger and people used to ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, I mean, I was probably only like five years old, six, seven, when this was happening. And I feel like that's kind of a, uh, I guess, normal, I put that in quotations, question to ask a child. But I feel like a lot of times that doesn't come with a reinforcement that they can do anything that they set their mind to and they can become anything that they want to be or anybody that they want to be. And I think it's given off as like this question that should seriously be considered when we're that young, you know? And I think I used to, I, I remember this scrapbook that my mom had me fill out and 
I think the very first thing that I put down was was astronaut. And I think that a lot of young children put that because it's a, a it's a child's inclination to want to explore and want to see what else is out there. And so I remember that being one of the first things that I wanted to be. But as I got older, that obviously changed throughout. And I think that sometimes giving a child a reinforcement that they can be anything that they want to be or become anybody they want to become, it it could come off as like instilling a sense of delusion in a child, I think, you know, for someone who's a, a realist and a realistic type mindset. But what that really does is if we don't reinforce this idea that a child can be anything they want to be, as long as they set their mind to it, it creates early limitations for what a child thinks that they could do when they grow up. And maybe there are limitations, but the the person needs to find their own limitations. And maybe they'll find that there weren't any limitations there. And whatever they did set their mind to, they could become. And so I don't necessarily think that a reinforcement of a child becoming anything that they want to become is unrealistic because humans achieve what seems to be impossible all the time. And it's only impossible until someone makes it possible. But back to my story. (laughs) Anyways, when I got older, I remember being in school and we would take those career tests or those tests It was like career mixed with personality, mixed with grades. I don't exactly remember, but the results were supposed to show you what you had a chance of doing for a career in your life. And those tests always really confused me because it was like, why, why is this being predicted at such a young age? You know, I don't even know really what my passions are. And my passions, I didn't feel like they existed in things at school because I wasn't, I wasn't really a, an academic person and I didn't push myself in school. And so whenever we would get these tests of my future being written out for me, it always brought up questions of like, why is my future written out for me? Why am I always focused on what I should be doing and not how I should be doing it or the type of person that I want to be compared to what career I want to have. And so that always confused me. And it always, it ended up as I got even older and went on to, you know, college. Those questions drove me to some pretty dark places. Um, There was a lot of anxiety around them. It planted a lot of seeds of like, I need to figure out my future in time for the future, like this this time is running out and I need to fit in with society and figure out my career at 15, 16, 17 years old. And it really ended up driving me to some dark places. Um, There were a lot of heavy emotions that came with these existential questions of where my future was headed. And the closer I got to graduating high school, it seemed like there were so many people who knew what they wanted to do and were going off to college and cared so much about their future. And I started creating this idea that like, I was kind of like a failure because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't care about school. I didn't push myself. And so it it really felt like everyone wanted to succeed more than me. 
I had a ton of social anxiety, social anxiety about the way I looked, the way I talked, my vocabulary, uh, the way I interacted with people, just like the full scope of anxious person syndrome. And I'm not saying that just these questions of what I want to do in my future are the things that created all of these within me because I had some deep traumatic experiences when I was a child. I had an amazing childhood and I'm very grateful for my childhood, but I had a sexually traumatic experience when I was about like three, four years old, uh, which I'll get into the full details in, in a later episode. But because it was a sexual experience, it drove and fed my decision-making in social situations as I got older. And as I got older, the social situations involved women and alcohol. And so when that revolves around a sexual trauma, there's so much anxiety and stress and fear around it that I reached for alcohol. And I realized that alcohol was a very simple cure for the anxiety and stress that came with being in social situations. And because I realized this simple cure, I developed a very bad habit of over-consuming alcohol when I would drink. And I didn't become like dependent on alcohol throughout my week and every day and all this stuff. But it, it was like, it was a different side of uh, what I would say being an alcoholic was not being able to control myself in the times that I would drink. And I, st I started blacking out all the time. Um, and I, I basically started a trajectory of letting alcohol control me. Uh, the other traumatic, you know, deeply traumatic experience I had when I was a kid was that my dad passed away when I was 10 years old. And I'm very grateful for him now, very grateful for our relationship. Um, but it wasn't this like candy and sunshine type relationship uh, when I was when I was younger, when he was alive. He was gone a lot because he was a pilot. He uh, he was an alcoholic himself. Uh, I witnessed many times of him doing the same exact thing where he would overconsume and get blackout drunk and use alcohol basically to deal with his stress and his anxiety and his mental health. And so I think I started picking up on that when I was a young age. And then the fact that he passed away when I was 10, as I got older, I kept ignoring the trauma that was there. And so the very things that I learned from him regarding alcohol started to manifest in, in my own life and in my own social life, which led to even more overconsumption of alcohol. Combining that with the sexual trauma and social situations, it was just like a, a vortex of anxiety and stress and fear and reaching for alcohol to deal with that, basically. And like any deeply traumatic experiences um, with both the sexual trauma and my dad passing away, uh, my mind created a black box and shoved all of my memories around this stuff into the black box, kicked it into a super dark corner in my mind, and my ego refused to look at it. And I basically pretended like it wasn't there. And then my body took up the storage responsibility for the emotional energy that came with those, those traumas. And it was 
bleeding into everything I did in life. And I didn't realize this back then, but it literally had control of all of my decisions. So in like 2014, uh, the combination of all of these things led me down a path of nonstop partying. I was addicted to being distracted, uh, of feeling good with drugs and alcohol. And I ended up getting addicted to Xanax for about like six to eight months. It was a very hardcore addiction to, to Xanax. I would, I would take it and drink and then wake up the next morning after blacking out, not knowing what I did, how I acted. I'd, I'd take more Xanax and it was just this endless black hole of just like trying to fill a void of trying to ignore my past and my traumatic experiences in my past while at the same time not wanting to think about my future and the future that I hadn't figured out yet. And so that just fed a cycle of feeling like a failure. And the only way to numb these thoughts and these feelings was taking Xanax and drinking. Pretty soon after the Xanax addiction, well, I was like six months into it, um, an opportunity presented itself in the music industry. And I had been doing a lot of things in the music industry as a passion, as hobbies. And that you know, because I pursued it, it ended up kind of manifesting into an actual opportunity for what seemed like a dream job. But as we all know, the perception of the music industry is very much uh, centered around partying and escape. And so I think, well, I did see the potential in it being a dream career. I was very set upon this being a new form of escape and a, an excuse to party more. I decided to stop taking college classes when I was going to Metro State and pursue this path in the music industry that I, you know, thought could turn into a career. But right before I stopped taking classes, uh, the Xanax addiction got so bad that I decided to stop taking it one night, um, like one day, and... I had been taking it pretty much every day for a very long time. And so with Xanax, that's very dangerous. And I was actually sitting at my kitchen table in my apartment working on my kind of part-time internship responsibilities for the music opportunity at that time. And I fell over in my chair and I had a seizure uh, because my brain couldn't take the abrupt stop of the, the chemicals from Xanax that I had a very close brush with what felt like death. Um, and unfortunately, when I moved fully into the path of the music career and started a full-time position, that brush with death still didn't stop me from over-consuming alcohol and reaching for Xanax. I wasn't reaching for Xanax and addicted to it like I was before, but I still thought of it as a cure or a band-aid for the, the stress and the anxiety that I was, that was constantly running in my body because, in my mind, because of this trauma that I was refusing to look at. I still asked around for Xanax, uh, 
here and then and overconsumed alcohol at, you know, shows and, and basically places where I was representing the company I was working for. And so I ended up almost losing my job because I still couldn't get a grip on my partying habits. I was was demoted from a full-time position to a part-time position and asked to move out of the house that everybody was living in and basically figure out my shit and to, to get myself together. And so I kind of did when I moved out. I, you know, I reflected on basically how I represented the company and how I showed up for work and and different things like that. And I was brought back into a full-time position eventually and thankfully given a second chance. But really all I learned how to do was distract myself with work and work all the time and continue to drink. And I might not have drank as um, abrasively and as in other people's faces as I was before, but I was still very much using alcohol to plug a, a void and to, and using my work responsibilities to distract myself from ever really reflecting inside and, and understanding that this trauma was basically controlling my life. Really, I just learned how to bottle my issues up more and just stuff them back where they came from. But when I moved back to a full-time position, I was put into a lead position as the head of A&R. So I was feeling even more pressure, which brought up more anxiety and more stress. And the overconsumption of alcohol continued. Uh, The distractions were stronger. And I, I basically ignored the trauma. It was, it was like it was using my ego to drive the vehicle of my identity while I sat in the back seat with a blindfold on. At that time, I was completely oblivious to what was actually happening in my internal world. And I still couldn't control my behavior in some social situations when I decide to go out and consume alcohol. I'd blackout drinking and act like an idiot, then wake up the next morning and basically go into the cycle of drowning myself in shame and guilt and and regret. But I would keep doing it, and the cycle would just continue. I didn't fully get a grip on my Xanax cravings. It wasn't a full-blown addiction at that at this point, but I still had cravings. Uh, and it was when I moved to New York City to pursue this same music career with the same company that gave me a chance to begin with. Um, I still, you know, because I was finally out of my distraction filled bubble, um, I had to sit with myself a lot of the times and I didn't have, I didn't have anywhere near as many friends in New York as I did in Denver. And so it was much harder to distract myself. And so I still felt the cravings for Xanax come up every once in a while, but I never followed through with them. Um, and actually one specific instance is kind of what put the nail in the coffin, uh, for me around Xanax. And what happened was I was on a walk in my neighborhood and on the street corner, a young girl came up to me. She was like 13 or 14 and basically asked me 
not basically, she did. She asked me if I had Xanax. And that moment was a huge moment of awareness for me because I felt her her pain and her confusion and suffering and just felt all the reasons why what that led her to ask a stranger for Xanax. And it felt like I was basically looking into a, a the shadow of my younger self. It made me feel very remorseful for the choices that I'd made and very, uh, a lot of regret, you know, I'm very thankful now for the choices that I've made because I wouldn't be able to get to where I was without them. But in that moment, it made me feel a ton of regret. And it basically made me realize that I would never, ever go back to Xanax again. And I haven't since that point. It pulled me away from the cliff that I felt like I was still standing at every once in a while. And then once that happened, I almost felt a responsibility to learn the causes that led me to reach for Xanax in the first place and then spread that knowledge to help people get through those challenges themselves. Addiction has always been a very prominent thing in my family, both sides of my family. Um, And when I was younger, it it was said like, oh, you know, be be careful of the addictive genes that are in your family. And I used to believe that, but now I, I, I don't believe that there's just like addictive genes that are passed down. I think that everybody is addicted to something. Uh, anything that has an action versus reward, could you could become addicted to it. And so I really wanted to go on a quest of, of figuring out like addiction and why I was addicted to reaching for certain things in the first place. And even though I I had a newfound awareness about my Xanax addiction, uh, my issue with overconsuming alcohol didn't stop until like late October 2018. It was right around Halloween. I went to a party one night and did the usual, got way too drunk, blacked out, uh, woke up in my bed, thankfully, the next morning. uh, But apparently I had called my mom like... I don't know, 12 times at three in the morning. And so she woke up in Colorado and was freaking out, you know, like any mother would and left a bunch of messages on my phone, messages on my Facebook. And so then I woke up like, oh my God, what did I do again? You know, I'd done that before. Um, One specific instance when I was in, was still living in Colorado, I went out one night in Boulder and took Xanax, drank, and blacked out and woke up in the Boulder Detox. And for some reason, they didn't let me use their phone to call my mom and let her know that I was all right. Uh, They said I could use it once I sobered up, but that didn't happen until three in the afternoon. So when my mom got word that the people who I was with couldn't find me or couldn't get a hold of me, she freaked out like any mother would again and ended up reporting me missing to the police. But thankfully that didn't go far because I got in contact with her shortly after she'd done that. And she ended up coming and picking me up from detox. Um, That was a very dreaded day. (laughs) I still remember the feelings. But yeah, basically... The morning that I woke up after the Halloween party to all these messages from my mom, I remembered that night and I had remember I I remembered a lot of other not so smart decisions that I made when I was blacked out or on Xanax or, or both, whatever 
whatever form of being blacked out that I used to get, I, I just remembered all these feelings and all these these memories that came up around it and how I had just made so many decisions that could have either killed me, uh, put me in jail for a really long time, or where I could have hurt somebody else. And I became in that moment very, very grateful that that had never happened to me. And I felt like my dad was pulling some cosmic strings to give me a second chance, you know, to wake me up to the fact that I needed to end this behavior once and for all. And ever since that night, I promised myself I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back to my ways of, of consuming alcohol and blacking out. And I haven't. Um, it's been a long journey. And I've made mistakes along the way, like anyone does. But I really have never gone back to that behavior because I made a promise to myself. Clearly, the last few months of 2018 were really designed to wake me up <laughs> because after that moment of realization that I would never go back to drinking like I had before, uh, a few weeks later in November, I had a panic attack one night. So I decided that I would start meditating and look into therapy and basically decided at that point in time that I was going to go down a path of, of healing. I was finally ready to look into myself and understand what was the root of all of these things that had led me to behave in certain ways. And I really had no idea what I was getting into. Um, it's been such a journey since then, but I basically started to find out that this trauma that was inside of me was collecting dust since I was a child, and it had a very tight grip on my subconscious and unconscious paradigms, and my behavior was being controlled by them in every possible way. The trauma had control of my past, and it showed up in my present, and then it affected my future. The things that I tried to ignore were the very things that covered my identity in what seemed like a thick layer of pain. And it closed my heart off, put it in a vault, and blocked off my own love from coming out and put up a guard to anyone else's love that was asking to be received by me. And I started thinking about the idea of the past and my identity and these traumatic experiences happening in the past in this trail of something that doesn't really, it doesn't exist in my present moment, yet these experiences and, and these feelings and this, these memories were dictating how I felt in the present moment and therefore they affected my future. So it's this really trippy idea of like, how are things that happened in a past that doesn't exist impede on my present and affect my future still? Like it, it doesn't make sense. And the very things that I was trying to avoid were, were tacked onto my identity. This trauma made me who I was on a, a subconscious and unconscious level, and I didn't even realize it. And I was planning to spend my entire life running from these things, to run from the, the ideas 
that had sunk into my subconscious and unconscious that caused me to reach for external gratification, like drugs and alcohol. These ideas were basically sinking their claws into the shadow of my mind and controlling me like a puppet. They dictated my every move, and I was basically projecting all of my shit onto the world and to other people. And so at that point, I realized I only had one option, and that was to dig very deep inside, go straight towards the darkness and towards the fear, and to uncover these ideas that had been buried in, in my deepest caves and, and really face, face the dragons that were guarding these, these treasures in my caves that I, that I seeked. You know, at that point, I, I wanted it. I wanted to heal. I wanted to understand myself on the deepest level possible. And that's when I embarked on the spiritual journey. And so that was right at the end of 2018, going into 2019. And in January, uh, I started meditating, uh, doing like three minutes of day, three minutes a day on a, on a meditation app called Aura, uh, A-U-R-A. It's awesome. Uh, and I started going to a therapist as well. And I only went to the therapist, uh, like maybe three or four times because I didn't just, I didn't feel like I was connecting with her. I didn't feel like the process was helping a lot. Um, I did talk to her about my sexual trauma and she kind of showed me that like the emotions that I was feeling when that happened kind of became cemented into myself and that's what would show up in my present moment whenever I was in social situations with women or when sex was involved it brought up these feelings that had happened to me when I was four and so that, that definitely helped, but I still decided to stop going. And I basically took that method of associating emotions and looked further into things on my own and dug into myself by, by myself. But I used some very useful tools, uh, flotation tanks, uh, sensory deprivation tanks. Uh, I, I did a lot of those at the beginning. Um, I started using psychedelics in a ceremonial type way where I would set intentions and uncover ideas that were and stories and small little narratives that were buried inside of me um, that I used the psychedelics to kind of bring into my conscious mind. And those have been a big part of my healing. And so I'll, I'll go into much more detail around those in later episodes and specific experiences I've had. But uh, with the combination of those, I also used meditation, um, and meditation, I would say, you know, that's what float tanks are. That's what sensory deprivation is. It's just like a heightened form of meditation, but using meditation to go back into my memories, my traumatic memories, and just examine them from every angle possible has been the biggest help in healing my trauma. And the more I encountered these memories and brought them into my conscious mind, the more I began to understand that the key to healing trauma is first by accepting that these traumatic experiences happened because there's something about the ego that doesn't accept the past and it thinks it can still change the past for some reason. <laughs> it's very, very odd. 
But the first step is acceptance. And then after that is forgiveness and really forgiving all people involved, including yourself, because a lot of times we take on blame for trauma ourselves when we're when we're young. But when it comes to forgiving other people involved in the traumatic experiences or who might even be responsible for the traumatic experience, it's much more about forgiving them for you. It's not about excusing their behavior, um, but it's like forgiveness is always for the person doing the forgiving first. It's not the other way around. Like you're not just forgiving people to forgive them. It's like you're forgiving people to let go of the negative energy and emotions that you've held on to for so long towards them. And so I went through a process of acceptance and forgiveness and dug into every possible angle around that, even around myself. You know, there were a lot of uh, times, not a lot of times, but within these traumatic experiences, uh, especially the sexual trauma where I felt like I could have hurt someone else afterwards or brought that pain to somebody else. Um, and it was a big process of, of forgiveness. And forgiveness is really, I'll say it again, is just about being able to release the energy and emotion that we've stored since the traumatic experience happened. And as I went through this process of forgiveness and acceptance, and then even gratitude, I became grateful for these things happening to me because it was helping me heal. And it was helping me wake up to the idea that I'm not a victim to the world, that I, that these things don't happen to me, they happen for me. And they happen for me so I could look into my darkness, turn that darkness into light and heal, and then I can help other people by being vulnerable with my story. And so that simple switch of perspective of this didn't happen to me, it happened for me, can change everything. It's a game changer. Things happen for us for a reason. The divine, the universe, the creative intelligence, whatever name you have for it, it's always putting us through experiences to give us a lesson. And that lesson is always to wake us up and to raise our consciousness and to heal and to transmute darkness into light. And it's to help us understand that we are not a victim um, we can become masters of ourselves and of our own emotional energy and of our thoughts through acceptance and forgiveness and eventually gratitude. And so the, the simple switch of perspective of this has happened for me has done wonders. And there's this, uh, famous poet, his name's Rumi. A uh, very spiritual poet. He's one of the most famous writers in spirituality and philosophy ever. Um, but there, he has this this quote, and it is, "The wound is where the light enters." And it's so simple, but so profound because the wound is where the light enters, and that light is there, waiting for us to look into the wound and to find it and to transform that light into boundless and abundant energy. And as I continued down this journey of healing, um, not only did I uncover my own trauma, but I uncovered a beast that was lurking in the depths 
of my unconscious and subconscious and that's conditioning and programming and societal conditioning and I never really realized until I went down this journey how much we are conditioned uh, from a very, very young age. And like as children, we pick up on every little behavior from our parents and the culture that we're in, from everybody around us. And things like movies, television, commercials, news, media, advertising, education systems, Basic interactions in everyday society cause us to infer conclusions without actually finding the full truth. And this is unavoidable in terms of having interactions in society because that's how life goes. And the human mind needs to have interactions with the external in order to assemble a construct of identity. And so when you're living in a society that doesn't isn't mindful around that, our interactions create an identity in our young, actively assembling ego, and we hold these ideas and these interactions and these judgments and these narratives, again, once again, back to the stories, these stories of who we are and who we think that we are based on society. And it's like, even if our, even if our parents are responsible people and raise us with good intentions, there still might be systems of belief that they pass down from their parents and their societal conditioning, especially if they haven't actively dug into their healing and their trauma and and their programming. And back to these interactions, every little thing creates constructs in our mind and, you know, interactions at school with teachers, the things we learn in school, interactions with friends and friends' parents, seeing a certain type of advertisement, and literally just observing society all creates forms of conditioning by passing down judgments and ideas that, again, we just we soak up. And we see these different patterns because the human mind is always trying to find patterns. And we store the patterns that we see and observe and experience in groups or complexes. And then these groups talk to each other by using those patterns to predict our reality. And the overarching consciousness of these groups and complexes is our ego. It's, it's the voice of self. And so when trauma mixes itself in there, which it usually does, because we all go through traumatic experiences, our reality gets fully distorted in paradigms of mainly fear because of the conditioning and programming, which puts us in uh, a state of survival. That's it, just nonstop survival. And we're in a constant state of fight or flight. So our present moment becomes controlled by the conditioning and trauma of our past that hasn't been looked at or healed. And if this isn't the definition of illusion, <laughs> it's like my entire identification of self and the external world was through a lens of conditioned fear. Whether that's fear that I was not enough, fear that I wasn't worthy of love, fear that if I didn't behave or think or feel a certain way, I wouldn't be worthy of acceptance into society or even fear that I don't deserve love because of moments in the past where I didn't get my needs met or feel heard. 
And then we're conditioned around our conditioning. So we assume that a conditional form of love and a conditional form of living is just how the world works. And this is why it's so important to heal ourselves. Because if we don't make time to do the inner work, we will walk around projecting our own trauma and our own shadow and our own fear onto the world and take it for truth. And then when we have a child, if we have a child, the cycle continues. The fear continues to manifest until someone is willing to accept their past, forgive and work through their trauma, and ultimately tap into this divine abundance of love that we have as human beings and use that love to hold space for every aspect of ourself. And this is why I'm, I'm obsessed with the quote, when you heal yourself, you heal the world, because it's so true. We're all connected. We're all piece of, a, of an energetic grid. And when we work through our trauma and our karma and we heal ourselves, we are literally healing a piece of the collective. And so I, I went into that whole tangent around conditioning just to describe like what I found around my own conditioning and how the smallest little things combined with other small things create these weird paradigms and patterns and complexes that I then take for, I used to take for truth and, and consider as, as part of my identity of who I should be or how the world should work. And the conditioning is just as big of a part as the trauma, if not more. And I understand that trauma is a touchy subject. It's very touchy because it brings up feelings within ourselves, but our egos will use every excuse in the book to not look into our own fear and confront our, our shadow and will project judgment to keep us running in loops, basically lost in, in this maze of programming and conditioning and trauma in our mind. But as team human, because we are team human, we are united as human beings. We can stand together an inch closer to these dark places in our minds. A lot of times it feels like we're alone in this journey, but we definitely are not. There are so many people in the world who support this journey and create resources to help us along the way. We're living in a world of easily accessible information, and the information around healing and consciousness is infinite. There is a whole movement and revolution right now around this stuff. And there are so many people on your side. And the world is literally our oyster, if we want it to be. We don't have to jump off of the deep end and plunge into the, the murky waters of our mind. We can take it step by step, put a toe in, <laughs> dip it in, feel it, come back a little bit later, put our whole foot in. It's a, it's a small process. It's one foot in front of the other, and we can ease into it. But we have to get more vulnerable, first with ourselves, and allow ourselves to feel and feel our truth in the moment and the truth of our past and that we not, not push things down because we think we should be a certain way. We have to get comfortable around having more conversations about our pain and the human experience because I think we come to understand that underneath it all we go through very similar things and when I say similar experiences I don't mean that everyone's trauma is the same we go through subjective experiences um, 
in our unique path in life. But when we look into it, a lot of the underlying things and the underlying pain and suffering is very similar. And when we can understand that, we can connect on it. And we can come together on the pain in the, in the human experience. And it's almost like our collective society has programmed our minds to convince us that outward projection of energy and attention is all we need. That we don't need to look inside because pain is bad and pain is fear. And we need to avoid that in order to survive. But in actuality, the only way we can survive as a species on this planet is by looking into our trauma and looking into our conditioning. That's the only way. The only way that we can come together and unite is by turning our attention from the external and from the outward and putting it inward to our internal world and, and, and heal ourselves. And coming together on this is really the best tactic to figure out how to unite as team human and heal the trauma that's been passed down by so many generations before us. We can move from a mode of survival to a mode of, of thriving, of being able to thrive as a species and as a unified consciousness. And the cool thing is you don't have to be a trained astronaut to explore the internal universe, unlike our external universe. You know, like the... The power is in our hands as individuals. We do not need education and to help us dive inside and face our uncomfortable truths. And the uncomfortable truths are that the answers we seek are hidden within our pain and within our darkness. And the only way to raise our children consciously and not let the programming and conditioning dictate the behavior of generations to come is to deliberately confront these conditional paradigms and traumatic experiences. It's such a big task that we're being presented with, but the key to going on this journey together is developing compassion for our individual self so we can bring that compassion to the, to the collective. Then, you know, I'd really think we'd realize that Again, underneath the subjective experiences, there are patterns that we share and patterns that we can connect on and, and try to understand together. And so since stepping into this path of healing for myself, uh, I finally feel like I have control of my decision-making, whether it's everyday momentary decision-making or situations that are social with alcohol. I, I have control of my decision-making. I've learned to work with my social anxiety and my insecurities through very compassionate ways of, of self-communication. I have more control of how I respond to thoughts and emotions. I'm able to sit with emotions and, and with feelings and thoughts more at, without reaching for things in the external. And on top of that, there's a significant difference in my physical body. It feels lighter. I can breathe easier. My chest doesn't feel as tight. My back doesn't hurt. I used to get these pains in my chest over my heart, and it was super scary when I would get them. And it was really sharp pains. And I took that as a message to look into the trauma around my father and around my heart. And ever since I did that, the pains literally disappeared. They have, they have not come back once since I started healing my trauma. 
And so what I'm getting at is that it, it just, it, it carries over into every single thing about our life. And it, it amplifies the light within us that's already there. We just have to get through our own individual darkness and, and face it with compassion and acceptance and love. And overall, I, I feel like I have just taken control of my narrative, of my story. That is me. Fear is no longer writing this thing out for me at the cost of my own free will. I'm starting to have more control of my presence. I feel like my future makes a lot of sense. And I'm the one writing it out. I'm not only working towards something I'm passionate about, but... I've reached a point where I feel fully in alignment with my soul's purpose. I still have a long way to go because there's no destination. There, there really isn't. There's no stopping point. It just goes deeper and deeper. And that's the rabbit hole of identity. And that's what this is. It's a game of identity. And it's about taking back control of our own story, of our own narrative, and learning to accept all parts of ourself, accept our shadow, accept our darkness, and learn that it's all part of us. It's all part of the collective. It's all part of us. If we really are in this together and we're unified, we have to accept it all. And that's what this journey is about. And that's what our narrative is about. And we got to understand that we have the answers that we seek within us. Like nobody else has the answers for us. They're, they're inside of us in our own individual selves, but we have to be willing to go searching for them. And when we're willing to go searching for them, that's when the journey starts. That's what this is all about. Because we're taking back control of our story, of our narrative. And we're taking back control of ourselves. And I have faith that everybody can do that. Nobody is more special than anybody else. We all have these capabilities. And that wraps it up. Thanks for listening to my first rant. <laughs> Uh, that went on a lot longer than I expected, but it felt a lot more natural. So I think I'm happy with it. Um, I love you, all of you, and I'm excited to share more of these. So if you want to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or, I don't know, Spotify do reviews, I'm so new to this, uh, that would help a lot, I think. Um, I'm excited to hear what resonates with you. And yeah, let me know what you thought of this first episode. There's going to be many more things like this, and I plan on getting a lot more personal. So let's get personal together. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be compassionate. Uh, I love everybody. Thank you.